We've got more money than ever in the country. We have some proven solutions and we have growing need. How do we join the dots between those three? Philanthropy being effective and scaling up and innovating is going to be really critical, particularly with what we're going through. Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today's detail is about giving away money and the shake-up that's going on in the world of philanthropy. Last week I was dealing with, with people who have a bucket for water to bring it in and a bucket for the toilet. And well, are you talking about people here in New Zealand? Yeah, and you know, I, I grew up in a family where I thought that was why we sponsored children in other countries. I didn't think that was what we had here, and yet... We've got those extremes too. James Palmer is founder and CEO of Community Finance. He raises hundreds of millions of dollars from our richest people and wealth funds to build homes for our poorest. We'll find out how James persuades people to give all that money. Plus, we'll talk to George Carter about a brand new groundbreaking fund that's not just for the uber-rich. It's really captured, I think, something of people's um, imaginations and hearts that says this is it's different. The, the idea that there is a fund where the economic gain from your capital isn't being used to enrich yourself, it's being used to enrich others. But first, let's look at what they call the charitable and for-purpose sector. It's estimated to be worth around $12 billion to our GDP. So, who's generous and who's stingy? Well, you might be surprised. NBR's Nikki Shepard delved into the philanthropists for the NBR list of the country's richest people. Well, there are a couple of statistics that really stood out for me. One is that half of them, all the money donated in New Zealand comes from everyday Kiwis, not what you normally think of as philanthropists, you know, the wealthy people and the family trusts and so on. Only 15% comes from corporates. We're heading for the biggest intergenerational wealth transfer in history as the baby boomers age. There's one estimate that as much as $30 trillion US is going to change hands over the next 15 years. Another one which was really striking was that a study in 2019 found that philanthropy is basically filling a $630 million shortfall in annual government spending on social services. So it was kind of heartening to hear that there are moves afoot in the philanthropy world world towards more kind of what they call strategic or catalytic giving, which is not just about throwing money, like small amounts of money to lots of different causes, but actually thinking about what is the change that you want to help affect? Who are the organisations in touch with those causes and those communities that are doing really good work and how can you kind of partner with them and help them achieve their goals? We know that there are a lot more wealthy people in New Zealand and that their wealth has grown. But does that translate to what they're giving away? Kind of hard to tell because they haven't really, no one really has been tracking that. I did cite a big study by John Morrow, uh, head of philanthropy at JB Ware, which provided a snapshot of giving in New Zealand from 2018. Now, he did predict that we'd see an upsurge in bequests, again, that, that's related to the intergenerational wealth transfer, and that there was scope for more corporate giving, which was partly to do with corporates and partly to do with you know, non-profits and charities figuring out how best to approach corporates. 
Okay, well, the big question is, who's the most generous of our rich listers? Well, they were varied in how much they wanted to disclose about what they gave and who they gave it to. Some who were quite outspoken about giving included Philip Mills, who's the son of the founder of Les Mills and, you know, still owns nearly all of um, the Les Mills International in New Zealand. He started up Pure Advantage, which is kind of like a, a green business think tank. We have in New Zealand some of the most amazing, wonderful timber trees of the world. We suddenly discovered a lot of people were thinking about this possibility. Why not manage native forests for all of their values? What we're trying to do is find that sweet spot between, um, you know, you've got the farmers that are interested in growing grass and you've got the exotic foresters that are growing trees for, for timber. We feel that there's a role there for natives and they can be integrated with the land uses and uh, they can actually enhance them. They don't have to be competing with them. And he is quite outspoken about if you're wealthy, you have a moral responsibility to give back. Someone else who talked about that was um, Tom Sturgis. Now, he's a, a farmer at the moment, and he's kind of, he's got sheep and beef farms, and he's following regenerative agricultural practices, um, but he made his money as an investor, kind of more in manufacturing world. Um, and he gave me this great, great line. He said, money is like manure. You pile it up, and it just stinks the joint up. You spread it around, and it does good. I'm looking as, at money as a tool. Um, That's great, isn't it? <laughs> When you um, made contact with these people, such as Philip Mills or Tom Sturgis, were they willing to talk about their philanthropy? Because in the States, it seems to be much more out there, but New Zealanders are a bit funny about money. Is that what you found? Absolutely, yes. In fact, John Morrow put it quite nicely. Um, he said, Australians are quieter than Americans. And New Zealanders are quieter than Australians, which, you know, across the board for a lot of things. But, yeah, there is a certain kind of reticence around talking about philanthropic work. And partly it's because they don't want to, you know, hang a sign out their door saying, I've got lots of money, come to me, I'm giving it away. Um, but also some people just don't want to be seen as, I don't know, virtual signalling, trying to get, you know, glory off the back of it. They just actually want to do good. There was a couple in Invercargill's. Scott O'Donnell and his wife, who are involved in, in a couple of local um, developments there. And one one thing he said there is that one of the strongest ways that he can give back, if you like, is by being a good employer. And that's another thing that comes through, that they can actually, in, in the course of their businesses, they can do good by being good employers. Which is funny, really, because that should be a given, shouldn't it? Being, being yeah, a an good ideal employer. World, yeah, <laughs> yeah. um, and I suppose our most famous philanthropist is Sir Stephen Tyndall from of Warehouse fame. His fund is K1W1. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And we hear a lot about that. I mean, he is very, very active, isn't he? Yes, exactly. Yeah. In fact, um, I spoke to a couple of other philanthropists who had, you know, come by their wealth later on in life and it almost, it's almost like he's a de facto advisor for the newly rich you know if, if they want some a steer on who to give money to now he's also involved in um, impact investing well impact investing for me is actually using your heart as well as your pocket in other words making decisions on things that you believe will actually have an impact for the country um, there's a lot of players that can be involved here so iwi 
um, private money, philanthropy, government. Um, and if we bring all of that together, I think there's a supercharged type of approach that the country can actually work on here that will help us dramatically. There's a really cool one called uh, Community Finance, um, which is basically a kind of pla- an investment platform, a go-between between individuals and um, even funds like KiwiSaver funds with money to give and housing, social housing providers or community housing providers. And he's one of the donors to that, or they actually don't give money, they buy bonds. But yeah, he's involved in that as well. And I think he brought on board, you know, a few of his mates that way. Which brings us back to James Palmer of Community Finance and how he uses bonds to entice investors to fund community housing providers like Salvation Army and Habitat for Humanity. When you've got infrastructure which is lacking, including homes, and if that average price is five, six, seven hundred thousand, we just don't have the philanthropic bandwidth to fix this or make a dent in it with donations. So it becomes how do you find a smarter way to meet need? And so for us that was how do we develop an impact investment platform that genuinely can get capital, that can generate a return and enhance and provide that outcome. You had obviously had dealings with, I don't know, wealthy people, philanthropists in your previous job. Yeah, so had met people that I thought would resonate with this, but also increasingly was dealing with the Reserve Bank, Financial Markets Authority, fund managers, and, you know, could see a lot of good people. In fact, there was money. I mean, if you look at, say, August this year, Aotearoa has $248 billion of funds under management. And so, you know, in some ways, yes, this is about high net worths that care. I mean, community finance, when, you know, we're seeking the capital to form it, first off the line was Brendan Lindsay, who established the steamer. He was incredible helping put the capital in to create it. But then our first project was working with the Salvation Army to finance 180 new houses in three sites in Auckland. So we needed to raise $40 million, which in impact investment terms would, would make us in one deal the biggest impact intermediary in the country, which shows we're quite in the infant stage of impact investing. Um, but it was such a good project. We, we signed up for it and we delivered it. I mean, we, we, we raised the $40 million three months ahead of schedule. Mm. But right at the beginning, you know, we were meeting Brendan and saying, this is what this investment will do. This is the return and here's what it does for people. I think I went in there pitching for a million and he said, this is great, and the Family Foundation put in five million. Why Brendan? I mean, did you already have some kind of connection with him? Yeah, I'd met him um, in the business world and reached out. He and his wife, Joe and, and family, they, they love the country, they love business. So I think merging philanthropy and business appealed. And something as tangible as, you know, these are people often who have been homeless for, say, five years getting in a, into a home if you can do that and get a, a, a financial return, everyone's winning. You know? mm. And I think that's quite attractive in life. So, you know, from that, got to meet Sir Stephen Tyndall and John McCarthy at the Tyndall Foundation. They've been pioneers in impact investing. And I think ahead of most philanthropic organisations and how they actually engage in, in philanthropy. So yes, they have grants, but they've been impact investing for years as well. So wealthy individuals got on board, but the real breakthrough was something else. 
the power of this is actually getting KiwiSafe providers and fund managers to go, hey, if we can deliver a return that's similar to other bonds in the market, and you just happen to be doing good and investing in this country, why would you not? And that was difficult to start with, but we've had some extraordinary breakthroughs in the last two years. And that's something that I think is exciting because you're getting away from the high net worths, which obviously have a critical role here. But when we're facing a, a multi-billion dollar challenge, we need to think about with, with all of us, with our own investments, how can we be ethical with actually where I put my KiwiSafe money? So right. for yourself, yeah. money, the biggest investor we had was Generate KiwiSaver Scheme that invested $20 million. Um, and, and what a game changer that was. And, and from that, we've now got, we launched what's called the Aotearoa Pledge this year, where we sought another $100 million in, in uh, commitments for affordable housing in the country. And that's where, you know, Simplicity KiwiSaver Scheme joined, Pathfinder, ANZ Bank has committed as well. So, you know, we've got 71 million of commitments already uh, for the next year of projects and bulk of the money is actually coming from fund managers. That's the interesting thing about this is it's not like I'd be throwing my half a million at it and not expecting anything in return. Yeah, so we we set um, our pricing in the traditional way that you do for a bond. I mean, there's obviously different ways. So we'll announce shortly, but I, it's happening here. We've just done an education bond, which is exciting. It was for 38 million settled last week. That's enabling um, an entity to buy a new site uh, with the aspiration that a school goes there. So that's now further steps to happen. Um, for that 38 million, investors are earning 3.78% per annum. And so, you know, the interesting thing is there, that's unlocked an amazing opportunity in an area where there's need. Um, it's a great result for the borrower, but for investors, they're getting a return that's often higher than they'd get in other what's known as fixed interest. So bonds or term deposits. Why do you have to give a return? I mean, would people not sign up for this if there wasn't some return on it? Yeah, good good question. There is a lag that I'm seeing between the foundations and trusts in engaging in impact investing uh, and the fund managers. And so in, in, in my head, it was going to take a bit longer to get the financial institutions on board, but to their credit, they've done the due diligence and can see the win-win. Whereas a lot of our philanthropic organisations, I think, are very much behind the eight ball here. So they're still working on the, we'll manage 100 million, 500 million, and we'll just do donations, or we'll do a little bit with our capital. The issue is, is that if we're going to really make a difference in something like housing, which we need to do bold, large, significant plays. And, you know, a uh, hundred thousand adds up, but it doesn't even buy, you know, it might buy a quarter of a house. For this to really take off, yes, we need the foundations and others to embrace impact investing. Uh, but to be honest, it's fund managers that are the ones that are shining light here that are getting it. And when you're managing 3 billion, 4 billion, 5 billion, you can deploy 20 or 30 million to this, get the same return as elsewhere, invest in something, and create a positive outcome. And that's really exciting to see that. So that's philanthropy in action, but not in the traditional way. 
Well, another non-traditional way of giving is the Freedom Fund that went public just last month with $1,000 minimum investment. It's a tier fund project, but it's the brainchild of George Carter, Managing Director of Nico Asset Management. The, the, the real background to this was that when I um, listened to a talk by Pick, who's a lawyer at working for the Lyft International up in um, Thailand, she was explaining the work that they're trying to do is dependent upon a, a, a sort of a regular stream of income that enables them to fund their work to deal with some of the worst abuses of trafficking and human slavery. And so I thought there must be a way, a mechanism for us as a fund manager to utilize our skills that says, well, we've got capital sitting over here doing nothing. We've got people over here needing a stream of income. There must be a way of creating a fund or a structure that can generate an income stream to support the charity whilst people don't need their, their capital. We can use it in the meantime. But at the same time, if they need their capital back because it's time to go on holiday or it's time to buy the car or something's gone wrong and I just need to access my, my rainy day savings, they just redeem their assets and we give them their capital back. But in the meantime, it's done some good. That, that was the idea. Trying to make it happen has proved a little bit more complicated than I initially thought, but we got there. Yeah, and it's an interesting time to be launching it, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're hearing about COVID and how difficult things are for a lot of charities, raising money, that kind of thing. What sort of response have you had? It's been enormously positive. I don't post very much. on. I'm not on social media, but occasionally we'll put something at work through LinkedIn. Uh, I might get 1,500 views of a post. Uh, wow. This one's had over eight, eight, eight and a half thousand. You know, it's it's really captured, I think, something of people's um, imaginations and hearts that says this is it's different. The, the idea that there is a fund where the economic gain from your capital isn't being used to enrich yourself, it's being used to enrich others. We're all used to the concept of philanthropic giving. I've got $5 in my wallet, I can afford to give it away, here's my $5. The idea that I've got five ten thousand dollars sitting in a bank and earning no interest, I'll let somebody else use that money temporarily um, to create some good whilst I'm not using it and don't need it. That's a different way of thinking. There's a lot of things that need to happen to make a fund work. And for this to operate, I needed to go to all of our partners and say, do you mind working for free and doing this as pro bono in order that we can create a fund that's got no costs and expenses in it? And every single one of them came out and said, that's awesome. Yes, we'd love to be a part of that. If all of these um, large and influential and thoughtful businesses can say, yeah, we're happy to give our time and energy free to make this work, then it's, it's clearly resonating and hitting some kind of mark that people are feeling attracted to it. You thought it was going to take, what, a couple of months to set this up, but it took a couple of years? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I probably thought maybe six months, bearing in mind that our entire um, investment structure of governance and legislation is all geared around investors taking risks for their own benefit. So when you're creating a fund where that's not the objective, then how, how do you disclose it? What's the documentation? How do you explain the risks? How do you ensure that the tax is right? It requires some quite um, elastic thinking from our <laughs> partners to make it work. Have you got a goal for how much you want to raise through this fund? It would be awesome if we could generate an income for Tier Fund of around, well, between fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year as a minimum and try to get that up towards a hundred thousand dollars over time. And to do that, I think that we'll need initially three to five million um dollars in the fund, which doesn't feel particularly ambitious. Um, I, I don't think. And I think about how 
supportive and encouraging queues have been around this initiative, $5,000 here, $10,000 there, it doesn't take long to raise that sort of money. And then once we've got that pool of capital at work, um, it will just sit there humming along, creating this, this stream of income for the tier fund, which is so exciting. So let's recap here on who is giving what. Some super rich individuals are generous, others we just don't know about. KiwiSaver funds are getting in on the Philanthropy Act. But what about our big companies? Well, the investment advisor and business desk co-owner, Brian Gaynor, found that actually our richest listed firms are pretty tight. Here's Nikki Shepard again. That doesn't surprise me given the JB Weir uh, study, the snapshot from 2018 of giving in New Zealand, found that only 15, and that's one five percent came from corporates. And given that half, 50% came from everyday New Zealanders. That doesn't look so flat. Um, he did say that there, that also part of the problem is that non-profits and charities don't necessarily know how to engage with corporates. It's kind of like, you know, different worlds, different languages. So that could be part of the issue. But I think it, it does, um, you know, it's beholden on the corporates to make them themselves engageable and, and, to, and to reach out into the non-profit sector and, and figure out ways to um, yeah, give more. We're starting to catch up with the broader concept of you are responsible as a company director, as a manager, to stakeholders. It's not just about shareholders. Um, but everyone's on a very different spectrum there. And I think New Zealand's not leading at all in the space. But there are tools you know, again, you don't just have to use donations. There are many ways to be philanthropic. And then there's the big question of wealth tax. There was this initiative in the middle of COVID last year, a letter from this group who called themselves Millionaires for Humanity. Some of the world's wealthiest people are begging governments to tax them more. The letter says the wealth gap can't be narrowed by charity, no matter how generous the rich are. You can't run a country club on everyone paying whatever they feel like. You can't run a country that way either. The letter ends with words you don't hear every day. Tax us, tax us, tax us. Because that's the other side of the argument. You know, some people say that we shouldn't be leaving it to wealthy individuals and their kind of whims, if you like, to um, plug up these essential services. You know, that, that $630 million shortfall in New Zealand annually, that we shouldn't be leaving it up to individuals. We should be... As a society, we should run things, our tax system, um, our economic system, in a way that ensures that um, public entities look after public good. I don't think increasing taxes by 5 or 10% would change a lot of the lives that I'm seeing. I, I think the answer somehow has to be the private market's not the solution on its own, but nor is the state. It, it has to somehow be that philanthropy smarter, that our $248 billion that we invest as Kiwis happens to have a fair amount invested in, in our own country and things that result in the country being better and more accessible for people, like affordable housing. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Adrian Holley engineered it. And thanks to James Palmer, Nikki Shepard and George Carter. Mā te wā. 